Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural and the just plain weird. And thank you for coming back to this series on cryptozoology, focusing for another week on the theories surrounding Yeti, Bigfoot, Sasquatch and other large, hairy, bipedal primates. This week we're going to be continuing to look at some of the Native American and First Nations legends surrounding Sasquatch-like beasts, and in particular exploring the ways in which they are not like anything we've been exploring so far, to a large extent. So this episode is greatly indebted to a number of works, namely Raincoast Sasquatch, the Bigfoot Sasquatch records of Southeast Alaska, coastal British Columbia, and Northwest Washington, from Puget Sound to Yucatan by J. Robert Alley, and In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch by John Zadda. Without these two works, I think these episodes would have been nearly impossible for me to make personally, as it is my own issue and ignorance that I know relatively little about Native American and First Nations culture and history, so I had to lean on a lot of sources ones which seem to be, to my eyes, well-researched and trusted, whilst also being aware of the question of whether some of these stories are even mine to tell. So I'm aware of this, and I'm trying my best to sort of negotiate this in the best way I can. So any errors or simplifications are entirely my fault. It goes to say the same about pronunciation. If I mess it up, it's entirely my fault. But I'm going to try and tread the line between sort of depth and breadth with the sheer range of Sasquatch-like encounters and beliefs and crafting a sort of through line that makes sense. And unavoidably, I'm going to be bringing my own narrative to the table here. But without much further ado, as I've already accidentally made this a two-parter, I will say for some of the context around these legends, please do check out last week's episode. But for right now, let's get into it. So the introduction from nativelanguages.org reads... Note that most of these legends are told by tribes of the Pacific Northwest region, Northern California, Western Oregon and Washington State, British Columbia, Alaska and the Yukon. So indeed, British Columbia in particular has been known to have been inhabited by the First Peoples for at least 14,000 years and has a long oral history with Sasquatch-like creatures or kind of man-like monsters. We're going to use these terms interchangeably, but as you will come to hear, they are really not that analogous to Sasquatch, but they do kind of get brought up alongside Sasquatch. So in In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, we are introduced to many inhabitants of this area that are keeping stories and beliefs alive in their own way. One such person moving to the area was John Bindenagel, who has since unfortunately passed on. But his viewpoint, to simplify, was very much aligned with the doctors Grover Krantz and Jeff Meldrums of this world, and sought recognition for the creatures he made researching his life's work. But nonetheless, in his view, the Sasquatch had already been discovered. The discovery, to quote, made first by indigenous people and later by colonists and everyone who followed. Therefore, the production of a living or dead specimen would simply be supporting a viewpoint widely held by those indigenous to the area. So the fact that indigenous oral history and traditional knowledge has been proven multiple times to predate academic discoveries in certain circumstances 
just underlines this assumption that it may be just a matter of time before these two seemingly differing viewpoints are united. But is it as simple as that? So again, from nativelanguages.org, the Bigfoot figure is common to the folklore of most Northwest Native American tribes. Native American Bigfoot legends usually describe the creatures as around six to nine feet tall, very strong, hairy, uncivilized, and often foul-smelling, usually living in the woods and often foraging at night. Native American Bigfoot creatures are almost always said to be unable to speak human languages, using whistles, grunts, and gestures to communicate with each other. In some stories, male big feet are said to be able to mate with human women. In some native stories, Bigfoot may have minor supernatural powers, the ability to turn invisible, for example. But they are always considered physical creatures of the forest, not spirits or ghosts. So in general, the creatures are considered to be physically real, but they have some overlap with spiritual creatures a viewpoint that you may find easy or hard to accept depending on your culture and belief structure, but it is key to understanding their place in certain oral traditions. So the creatures are in general, in the stories we're going to be talking about, considered to be both corporeal beings and spiritual ones, and that this is not a contradiction. What we have been exploring so far very much pits these explanations against each other. The idea that the creature can only be purely physical, an animal that can be classified in the same way we classify animals in the purely scientific model of classification, versus the idea that they are some spiritual, non-corporeal, and therefore some supernatural being, and that there can be no leeway between the two. But that is not a purely empirical viewpoint. That is not an unbiased viewpoint, as we will come to discuss. So most of the creatures we will talk about are going to tread the line between the two. So they're going to be physically corporeal, yet also possessing some supernatural traits. So for instance, the Bukwus or Bakwas or Box of the Kwatiutl and other Northwest Coast tribes are not truly Bigfoot figures, but bear enough resemblance to them, i.e. man size and covered with tangle fur, that they are often identified in this way. But the big difference is that Bukwus are actually an undead monster. So I'll mention this is one interpretation of these animals. As you will come to hear, the legends sort of differ among different peoples, and we're going to go through some of those. But in at least one telling of their legend... They are undead monsters. They are the ghosts of drowned people. Again, this is from nativelanguages.org. Their bodies are depicted as stylized skeletons, and they spend their time trying to trick human beings into becoming ghosts by offering them the food of the dead to eat. In this regard, they are, of course, significantly different than the other Bigfoot creatures who are considered to be real creatures of the forest and not ghostly in any way. So paraphrasing a little bit there. So the appearance, motives and behaviour of the creatures vary significantly by region. But nonetheless, they all occupy a space between man and animal, living and dead. So I think from this very briefest introduction so far, 
we can see how at a very surface level there can be an analogy drawn between the anomalous primates that have been argued by the purely scientific Bigfoot hunting community, i.e. them being tall, covered in fur, and sort of resembling a wild man in some way, but being similar to people, i.e. man-like in some way. We can see how there are some surface-level similarities, but as soon as you start digging into the legend even slightly, I think that analogy kind of breaks down. So the Bukwuz or, or woodman in Kwakiutl folklore are a person who takes away drowned people, so his body is cold as ice. Whoever accepts the food offered by him cannot go back. So there is this idea of a process by which man can be transformed into something else, of a kind of price to pay for survival, and this balancing act at work that is a function of the natural world. And this is a theme we will see come up over and over again. But this process has been said to be at least in some way reversible. Occasionally those so lost may be brought back to civilization through purification, similar to rites practiced in former times by the Tlingit and Haida, but this is far from guaranteed. So clearly these creatures, although physically similar in appearance to some Sasquatch-like legend, have some level of supernatural power. There is this theme of a kind of curse which can overtake people, and in some legends they have the power to hypnotise those who they lock eyes with. They very much have beyond human powers, you know, supernatural by the very sort of basic reading of that term. So another thing that separates these creatures from some of the others we will talk about and have spoken about up until now is that it is explicitly linked with the winter dance season, where it is said that he can communicate with the dead and bring them back to life at this time of year. So much of the view we have of the physical appearance of Bukwus or Bakwas comes from the carved ceremonial masks currently held primarily in museum collections, where the image of the creature was used in ceremonial dances. So these masks generally featured a bird-like hooked nose, a strong brow, and arching, defined eyebrows. So it's a distinctly intense, quite aggressive look, but a typically human portrayal. And some of the legends state the creatures being as warriors who became lost and eventually transformed into Bukwuz or Bakwas. Similarly, the Hamatsa, also known as the Cannibal Dance, is a ceremonial dance which reenacts a spiritual combat between a Haithsuk ancestor and a cannibal spirit of the North. So featuring as one of the many rituals of Northwest potlatches, it forms one of the ways in which the material and spiritual death and life are enacted in a complicated, unentangled, present manner. So what may on the one hand be viewed as a man-like monster, a creature of the frontier to be feared but ultimately conquered, on the other is a vital part of life and something to be respected. And I think there's fairly clear evidence of this difference in approach. You can quite clearly see in some of the early accounts of you know early colonial visits European explorers a lot of the time coming across these tales while out 
in the wilderness and kind of translating something which those whose culture the creature is from it is an essential part of life it can be translated into this kind of site of fear to people who don't have the same respect and same viewpoint when it comes to this entanglement between life and death. And Bukwu is featured in many cultures. So Bukwu as a variation of Baush or Baways, again apologies for the pronunciation, translate according to a Simshian dictionary by John A. Dunn as an ape, monkey, bigfoot, anything that imitates man. And from this description, you may gather that they are a little bit closer in some interpretations to the Bigfoot our anomalous primate scholars were hunting. So continuing this description, this is from Raincoast Sasquatch. A member of a forest-dwelling remnant population of hairy people who roam about at the simplest level of existence, but are extremely adapted to a solitary life without the social benefits of human shelter, clothing, or tools. However, the sort of prescribed Bigfoot may clue you into the idea that this was a later translation and probably something that was prescribed onto these traditions, and almost certainly influenced by a concurrent wave of ape fever in the West. But nonetheless, some of the sort of key things are there. We have got forest-dwelling, hairy people-like but not people, living outside of society. All the key elements are there from sort of our Sasquatch law, but the sort of meaning ascribed to this is completely different depending on your cultural background. So with these creatures in Native American First Nations cultures, it is believed that mutual respect is the way to go. So if you don't bother them, they won't bother you, but if you do, they are liable to play tricks on you. So box bukus of the new Hulk-speaking Bella Kula are a part of a pair of interconnected supernatural beings, often spoken of as analogous to Sasquatches. So current use of the term box translates roughly to wild man of the woods. They are also said to have supernatural powers, and it is unwise to attempt to kill one. So Sninik are another humanoid creature analogous to Sasquatches in New Hulk legend, but they are pale-looking with clammy skin, thin fur, and knees coming up as high as their head when crouched, with a whooping call that would be quite hard to confuse with a traditional Sasquatch, I think. So they are... Definitely less human-looking. Um, I think you would be hard-pressed to mistake something with knees that go above its head as a, as a human when crouched. But some consider the creature to bring bad omens, with their gaze, again, capable of triggering comas or even death. So in, in the valleys of the noble beyonds, after Clark Han's encounter with the Sasquatch, despite him going through attempts to purify himself... The creature he felt nonetheless haunted him, to the point he described his fear and anguish deepening, and to the point he was hospitalised for anxiety, and he did not return to the site of the encounter for decades until pressed to do so. So it is said that in many Native American legends, the supernatural world, the dividing line between human and animal beings, is not clearly defined. 
Therefore, fabulous monsters can be appeased, besought, or cajoled precisely as are anthropomorphic beings. So this is from a site on British Columbian native legends. The New Hulk believed that ghosts occupy the spirit world, where everything is the exact opposite of what is in the world of the living. There is an extreme scarcity of food in the spirit world, which drives the ghost to visit the mortal world. So the needs and wants of the living and the dead are often viewed to be kind of one and the same, occupying a sometimes overlapping space. And therefore these man-like creatures are worthy of respect, as much as any other person is. And it feels like this man-like aspect of the box is paramount to understanding the creatures. So described as generally human-like in height and appearance, but with long arms and generally less than human height, entire body covered in hair except their face. In some stories, what truly sets them apart is apparently <laughs> its penis, which is so long that it has to carry it in its arms rolled up as it walks. I could only find one reference to this, uh, so I have no idea as to the accuracy of that, but the image was too good to pass up, so I'm putting that in. But for some Heitsuk, the box or bookwoos are little woodsmen, a form of evil manifest. And again to quote, if people are really struggling in life and are in imbalance, they tend to be more likely to see bookwoos. So it is thought that they only appear to people under certain guises and in some ways appear to people who who need to see them. So this is a theme, again, we will come up with over and over again. But it's said you can tell one is around as they tend to make their presence known by tapping sticks or their nails on the walls of your cabin at night. So, so while gathering shellfish at the rocky point of Restoration Bay, it is said that a group came across some box gathering clams before dashing off into the forest. Perhaps foolishly, they decided to ignore the advice of mutual respect and leaving them alone, and decided to attack the already retreating creature. But when the musket was raised to take the shot, it exploded in the hunter's hands, and this was thought to be the work of the man-like creature and their supernatural powers. So the Bella Coola believes that the box, unlike most supernatural animals, have not abandoned the country since the coming of the white man. That was from Renko Sasquatch. A horde of them were said to have come to their friend's aid after this failed musket shot, and they are said to crash through the forest and beat on tree trunks, with official accounts reported as recently as 1924. In another account, it is said that the canoe used to reach Restoration Bay was suddenly found to be within paddle's length of the channel, so the box had, by their supernatural power, raised the whole area so that the water had been almost entirely drained away. So in the folklore of more northern tribes, such as the Bellacoola, box are malevolent, dangerous monsters who may eat people or molest women. But in Chinook and Cilician versions of these legends, box are sometimes depicted as more benign beings, 
Nonetheless, Bella Cooler encounters have continued to the modern day, with accounts of the creature stepping into the path of passing cars or narrowly missing them and disappearing into the night. Our creatures again to quote, of such enormous stature that they stepped across the highway in just three strides before melting into the blackness. So in in the valleys of the noble beyond, a lot of time is spent in Bella Coola, which is presumed to kind of be the hotspot for these Sasquatch-like encounters. There are many modern encounters with creatures, and although they share some similarities with more modern Bigfoot ideas, certain hallmarks, a kind of ape-like or monkey-like description that perhaps wasn't there in some of the older traditions, nonetheless they maintain this supernatural edge. And they are not the only creature that does this. So the Kushtaka, often, often pronounced Kustika, i.e. the Tlingit name for a lost human transformed into a hair-covered creature, is still used in southeast Alaska today, even by some non-natives as a euphemism for Sasquatch. So particularly popular amongst fishing communities, so this little account is going to come from Rainco Sasquatch, particularly popular amongst fishing communities, is a creature that lives in the dark where civilization and wilderness meet. So again, to quote, although similar to man-sized Sasquatch, they are believed to be the embodiment of lost relatives. So they are believed to be human-like beings with spiritual connections to man, with a powerful reality on many levels, which is wise to respect. And the reason they're thought to sort of exist in this space between man and creature and the physical and the spiritual is that Kushtaka were essentially men who, through near drowning or becoming lost, had been influenced by the Kushta or land otters and had grown hair all over their bodies, lost their reason and gone to live with the otters. So they were called the land otter people. They were transformed people who, by the process of this kind of push and pull with nature, had been transformed into something on the spectrum between human and animal, but not quite either end. So they were intensely feared for their ability to capture one's soul by hypnosis. So again, they were presumed to have more than human levels of power, but it was not all bad. So the same power that meant the Kushtakas were feared and thought it was through which they enticed others in with their sort of baby-like cry was also the same power that the Tlingit doctors derived their power through, through this supernatural otter. Therefore, killing one of the creatures was forbidden, as there was a chance that the creature was one, a transformed relative or a friend, or also the fact that killing one might incite a war with the Kushtakas. Therefore, of course, again, the best course of action was to leave them alone. So in carvings, they are portrayed anywhere in the spectrum between human and otter, some as if sort of mid-transformation, as with some bookwoos of legend. So Tlingit folklore references the belief that the creatures were also able to change shape into people at will and use this to lure others into the forest. They seem to retain to this day their association with 
this baby-like cry and with the idea that this cry at night might serve as a sort of portent for sickness or disaster. And they always retain a strong association with mortality. So again, this is from Renko Sasquatch. So when speaking to Linga aloud, it was not customary except when going to war or expecting one's imminent death to refer to Kushtakas with the euphemism, we who live at the points welcome death as food for the soul. So modern writing around Kushtaka have retained the fear of their cry at night with tales of encounters featuring their eerie cry piercing the otherwise complete silence and blackness. They were a portent of death, a kind of living death, and a kind of symbol of this transformation from man to something not quite man. So I think one key difference which I would like to raise just at this point is in a point of contrast to anomalous primates or this kind of idea of relic populations. These man-like creatures of relic population theories were always assumed to be similar to people in some way, but always less than. You know, they were ape-like, a potential long-lost relative to humans, but with the implication being that we have kind of outpaced them and outstripped them in some ways. But the creatures of Native American First Nation legends, or at least the ones I've been researching here, are very much more than people. They have more than human intelligence a lot of the time. They can trick you. They can entice you. They can manipulate you. And they have supernatural powers, i.e. above natural. They have more than human powers. And they are to be respected for this. I think that's one key difference I just want to bring up and highlight now, just in case it hasn't come across. So the image of the Kushtaka has kind of been reshaped in some recent writing, as well as broadening the association with the supernatural as a kind of appetite from new ages to engage with mysterious spiritual beings has sought out several little inlets into Native American legend and folklore and just run with it. So in Search of the Kushtaka by Dennis Waller, he posits several things. That the Kushtaka are shape-shifting, time-bending, mythical creatures capable of taking your deepest fears and turning them into a nightmarish reality. And he associates the tales with the Bay of Death, which we've already spoken of. So this rumoured-to-be retribution for breaking a covenant with the Kushtaka. And as a kind of spiritualist and paranormal writer... He expands on the viewpoint that myths such as these put us in touch with our mortality in some way. I'm not going to talk about this too much now, but I will say that's kind of going to lead into where we're going next week. But clearly there are some striking similarities and differences from Bigfoot lore here. And there has also been the suggestion that some have mistaken Kushtaka for the also Tlingit Hootsland meaning bear man, so another hairy and man-shaped creature more recent than Kushtaka, but maybe bearing more similarity to Bigfoot than the land otters. And you can see how if you sort of pick and choose little elements here and there, you can kind of piece together a collage of something that is similar to the idea of our modern 
Sasquatch, but you have to, you know, it's like making a tiny puzzle out of a thousand-piece puzzle and calling it a day. <laughs> now, the Bella Bella, who are kind of close neighbours to the Bella Coola, have their own giant human-like creature with a name that I have tried to pronounce and I, I cannot, I'm sorry, but this is a different creature as it is a woman, it's a wild woman of the woods with a basket on her back with inward facing spikes that she uses to carry away kidnapped and lost children. So in legend the creature carried away a boy and took him to her house as captive for a year. When she went to the beach to collect clams one day, as she always did, the boy waited until she returned to shout and bash discarded shells together and frighten her until she fell from her home to her death. But unfortunately, he was not the only captive child. This was not a singular account. This was an issue. Children were going missing in their droves. So the local village agreed to do something about it. So four watchers agreed to stay up and wait for the beast, who is said would steal children at night. Miraculously, with a lot of luck, they managed to capture her, and after some deliberation, the village agreed unanimously to burn her body to ashes. But there was a price to pay. Those who breathed in the smoke from this fire were to die almost instantly, and those who didn't breathe in the smoke, those who survived left the place for good. So although the tales have this sort of allegorical use and a practical one, so instilling caution in children by this sort of cautionary tale, stopping them from just wandering off, they are not just tales. So when John Zada follows up in In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond on these modern tales of what he's seeking, so Sasquatch, he is met with people recounting, yes, I remember being told these tales as a child. I remember camping and it would be around a fire and hearing these tales as a sort of fireside cautionary tale when I was a child and it really, you know, putting the fear into me. But at the same time, I believe that they are flesh and blood creatures. So this is a quote again from In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond. So the Heitsuk, from which the legend comes, their name translates to those who live and speak in a proper manner. And some believe that this creature functioned in a way to kind of cajole members of their community back onto the right path. And there's this idea that they may be kind of drawn to negativity, so says Rob Duncan, a camp counsellor in Bella Bella interviewed in, in the Valleys of the Noble Beyond. So Jess Hausty, a member again of the Heitsuk Tribal Council, expands on this even further. She says this, On one level they're supernatural and sacred beings that we interact with. I was raised with the understanding that if you saw them and you were afraid, it was a sign that there was something inside you that needed to be corrected if you saw them and responded with fear. So the creatures serve not only this spiritual and psychological function, but are also corporeal. And again, she says this, they're there and part of the same landscape that we are a part of. But there are some creatures of legend that 
bear a stronger resemblance to the Bigfoot that we're familiar with than others. But nonetheless, they retain this spiritual and supernatural quality. So the Gajit or Gajid of the Haida people who now mostly live in the village of Heidelberg of southwest coastal Alaska also have a belief which reflects a process by which a person may be transformed into a kind of wild man. And it is thought that these stories form a part of the tradition of vampire-like storytelling, so they serve the same utility in instilling fear and caution, as we've spoken of previously. So Gajit doings are often found after a person was lost at sea or only his capsized canoe was found. When unable to find a body, the possibility of a lost man turning Khajiit gained wide acceptance. So termed Khajiit, or man on all fours, which in Haida means a man falling from fatigue, cold and hunger to become a wild person, it was also occasionally called a man or ape man as on occasion they ran on all fours. So this definitely has a few more similarities with the sort of modern Bigfoot story than we are aware of. The wild man, this link to a more animal-like creature, ape-like specifically. But again, there is a similar taboo around killing the creatures. And although there is a legend of one being to quote, put out of its misery when it was spotted on a beach, the sight became forbidden. It was said to give off an ominous aura to those attempted to fish there, and anyone who went there seemed to just come to no good. Although seldom seen as well, they are said to be hard to look at, as they represent a man transformed into something else. And again, there is also in legend tales of a person being caught seemingly mid-transformation to Gajit. And all those who found the previously missing man tried to gently revive him and warm him by the fire, the change was ultimately too severe and he was to die. So is this a process that can be reversed? It's hard to say, but it's clear to see some of the utility of the story, how it has been born at least from attempts to bring a lost person back to civilization, perhaps the idea of their body going to shock of being warmed too quickly, you can see how there's a real utility to this story. And at the same time, you can see how it could form a kind of comfort and a kind of answer for the sheer unforgiving nature of nature, the idea that people can just be taken from you. Stories which imply that the lost, particularly the missing, presumed dead, can return to you in some spiritual manner, have a form of comfort. You can see how they have a sort of comfort there. But again, there persists a good many traditional beliefs that to disgust Gajit or Kashtaka will bring bad luck or even death. However, the stories have persisted, and there are many reasons for this, of course, they are quite emotionally charged tales. As mentioned, they have some utility and they embed within them a profound respect for nature and an ethical means for interacting with it. So often having embodied in them useful rules for managing a resource or for surviving in a challenging environment. 
So in these kinds of accounts, they start out life as people, and although transformed into a figure in many ways feared and in many ways resembling a kind of Sasquatch-like creature, they should nonetheless be respected and serve as lessons for those to come. So just because they are manlike and hairy, to reduce them to just this quality of manlike and hairy ignores a bulk of what these creatures mean within their cultures. But there are some interesting similarities between the signs of a Gajit habitation and the tales of Albert Osman in his I Was Captured by a Bigfoot, as mentioned, the account which kind of put his story out into the wider world. So a careful search of the woods the next day gave ample evidence of a Gajit at large, and this evidence is said to be large moss nests under a tree, with the moss being still warm, huckleberry branches broken off and seeming to be eaten with some of the stems. So the moss bed described by Osman was a detail which was completely foreign to and at odds with pretty much all other accounts of Sasquatch at that time, and it was a particularly humanizing element and it's interesting to see that specific detail kind of rear its head in the story of Khajiit habitation so it'd be interesting to know if he spoke to anyone who mentioned this form of sort of wild man tale to him and I think these are the hallmarks that are the hardest to kind of square up with cryptozoology or the study of anomalous primates the idea that these legends may present evidence of an existing relic population, that hypothesis ignores key elements of the legends. Yes, it is true that indigenous peoples have long oral traditions and necessarily know some truths about their homes that European settlers wouldn't. Again, I think it's just hugely reductive to say, oh, there is some evidence of kind of ape-like, human-like, non-human peoples within this culture. It must be the same as anomalous primates. (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. So the theme of transformation from man to creature, this repeat insistence of the personhood of them, of the idea that they should be respected as equals, even as they are feared, they should be respected. This reverence and respect, as in many ways they were viewed as either physically or metaphorically ancestors to those who may meet them. So these hallmarks, I think, they clash quite drastically with kind of where we've come from, from a scientific viewpoint. So as much as I'd love to think that there is going to be in a future this a discovery of a specimen that is not only going to prove the anomalous primate research is correct and also show that it has some sort of lineage and proof in oral traditions and legends of indigenous peoples. I just don't see how that could happen. I feel like there is too much of a contradiction between those two very differing viewpoints. But of course, this was a brief and incomplete survey of some Native American First Nations legends and oral history. So one thing I hope you take from this, though, is that they are more united in their differences 
from modern legends than they are their similarities, arguably. So I've skipped over many similar legends, but the fact is belief in some kind of mountain or forest-dwelling, wild man or human-like creature is everywhere. But to borrow a question from Rainco Sasquatch, are all of the traditional beliefs possibly describing simply humans gone wild? It appears not. So although many of the traditions begin with a man transformed, it is a physical transformation beyond the physiologically possible. However, there is a theory that some of the stylized forms of artwork of the region helped to change the perception of the creature as further and further from human in shape and size. There are enough similarities between some of the creatures to imply that they may be descriptions of the same or similar creatures, especially when they have similar names, but just with the different ascribed behaviours, different attributes, origins, different physical or spiritual qualities to the point, you know, the similarities become moot. But there is also something else to consider. So in Tribal Bigfoot, David Paulides says this, I've heard many Native American stories about Bigfoots over the years, but one consistently told is listed below. This story is so widespread that it deserves mention. The specific statement was forwarded from Native American PhD candidate Mel Brewster, the first being Brewster's explanation of Bigfoot as a spirit. So it is an explanation which again aligns much of what we have been talking about today with some of the difficulties with the anomalous primate study. The issue and the paradox of the lack of physical evidence. So if these tales are to support the hypothesis that there is or was a community of large, hairy, human-like beings wandering around the forests of Pacific Northwest, why is there still so little physical evidence of such? So to quote Brewster, There are some indications from the Numa community that perhaps you or some other creature is a spiritual creature. That meetings with it are spiritual and that the only way to get to him is spiritually. Otherwise, chance encounters with a spirit are impossible to follow up. You may be chasing a spirit that takes form on occasion, leaving hair, footprints, smells and so on. I'm sure you can meet the spirit, but you'll need to be by yourself, away from the smell of a lot of people, and you will have to leave the Western tradition behind. So, in The Sasquatch People and Their Interdimensional Connection, by Jack Lapsaritis, there is a comment from a Native American posted to BigfootSightings.org. To quote... The ones called Bigfoot have many powers beyond shape-shifting. They can read a person's mind. They can communicate mentally with each other and to certain people who are sensitive. They know of this world and what is going on with us. They avoid what we do and keep themselves hidden unless they want you to see them. Then they show themselves. It is no wonder why none have been captured because they know your thoughts and can read thoughts in about a five-mile radius. So in Interdimensional Connection, Lapsaritis touches more on this aspect which I've had trouble researching, 
and brings up a point that is also in Tribal Bigfoot, that the proliferation of Sasquatch sightings around Native American reservations. And the implication in this is that Native Americans and Sasquatch may be more culturally aligned with each other than the mostly American and Canadian cryptozoologists who are seeking Sasquatch, and that reservations represent areas that are kind of unspoiled by this Western influence. So again, to quote, Native people living in the traditional way do not normally shoot at or molest the forest giants, and the white Westerners are not allowed to hunt or trespass on Indian land. So indeed, there are as many reports of the creatures helping Native Americans as serving as a warning to them. As we mentioned, it is a relationship of mutual respect. It is a complicated relationship of folklore and tradition that is tightly interwoven. But I think one thing is for clear is that these are not exactly the Bigfoot that we were talking about in the Patterson-Gimlin film. So to quote one last time from the excellent In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, after days of immersion in deep traditions with powerful metaphors and connections to other realms that seem alive and ever-present, I feel odd returning to the question of the Sasquatch. The idea of an immaterial preternatural Sasquatch of spirits makes more sense to me now, while more conventional notions of Bigfoot seem awkward and simplistic. So there is no one-to-one analogy between the Bigfoot or Sasquatch of modern cryptozoological circles and the wild men of varying Native American First Nations legends. There are a few surface-level similarities that could be used to argue some level of similarity of experience between modern Bigfoot experiences and some historical precedent for contact with large bipedal non-human creatures. But that is about as far as the similarities go. In terms of the details of the legends, at least the ones I've been able to learn about, there isn't a whole lot of similarity there. So I'm not discounting the fact that there may be legends which much more closely fit with this modern idea of Bigfoot. But I I feel like if that were the case, a cryptozoologist would have found that by now and I would have read it in one of their books. (laughs) But one thing that is shared, though, is the variety of reactions to these creatures. So some are reaction of fear of the unknown, this potentially existing on the edge of human civilization, this frontier idea that fuels a lot of human fears, this near human but not. But there is also a reaction of hope that human-like beings can live in a kind of harmony with their environment, quietly and in relative isolation, and that this could be a potential for humans too. And I can't help seeing with this, of course, a parallel with the struggles of the Native American and First Nations peoples to have access to the land and the creatures that are sacred to their way of life. Contact with these creatures could present a rich opportunity to engage with non-human species with human-level intelligence or non-human people. And through this, a relationship to better ourselves, 
In In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, Zada circles back again and again to the same question around the nature of our reality, how much it can be influenced by the culture once surrounded by, the state of mind of the experiencer, our reason-seeking human interpretation of what surrounds us. And ultimately, it raises questions about objective reality. And if that phrase is just straight up an oxymoron, so Bigfoot repeatedly fails at providing objective evidence for existence, but it still exists as a natural and inevitable truth for many. Is it a creature that by design or necessity explores this contradiction at the heart of the concept objective human reality, where something can be true and untrue at the same time? But to quote a film that I adore and to dodge giving an answer to that question, to answer that would take the piss out of the whole thing. So I've really enjoyed diving into cryptozoology and focusing on the study of Bigfoot, Sasquatch and other similar human-like creatures. And what I've tried to do as much as possible is to not make too many shortcuts and align things just because they are a convenient fit. It is very clear to me that there is a long lineage of Sasquatch and Sasquatch-like creatures in Native American First Nations legend, but it is not so simple to say that they are the same creatures as Drs. Jeff Meldrum and Grover Grants, Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Hoovermom, John Green, etc., etc., were speaking of. They represent a spectrum of man-like peoples as cautionary and helpful as any other human people, and the ways in which they interact with various communities are changing and impossible to sum up with broad statements. But the thing that has jumped out to me again and again is the personhood of them, even as they are described as cannibalistic giants, kidnappers with the power of hypnosis and shape-shifting. Nonetheless, they are people and worthy of respect. So this was a really long one. I was naively thinking I was going to keep this one fairly short, but it turned out to be very challenging to research, but absolutely fascinating to research. And at that point, I just had to kind of stop reading, otherwise I would never put out another episode ever again. So next week, we're going to be exploring a somewhat related aspect to Sasquatch myth, the UFO connection, the idea of the proliferation of Bigfoot and UFO encounters in the same areas and the belief that they may be related or one in the same. So I hope to catch you there. I know that might be one step too far for some, but I hope you come along with me. In the meantime, you can find me wherever you enjoy your podcasts and you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast and search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for episodes there. I will see you next week. For now, much love as always. Bye.